Okay, so uh, we've been in a, this is the third week of a series called If, and over the first two weeks, let me just kind of tell you what we've been over, and if you, if you get a chance, go back and listen to all the messages. You can uh, go to our YouTube page, you can go to our website, all the messages are up there. Um, and then this week's message, of course, will be on the app uh, tomorrow afternoon. But I, I just wanted to kind of catch you up real quick. So the first week we talked about this idea, if God is for us, and many of us have this struggle, and we have this problem with... Um, Believing that God is for us because we look at all the things and the commands of scripture and we go I don't know if he's really for me or not But the reality is is that if God is for us, then who can stand against us? And it's just a beautiful promise from scripture because God is for those who are in Christ and then last week uh, We we talked about this this um, idea that if that Jesus said people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another and unfortunately sometimes in the church we don't experience the love side of people, and we don't experience the love side of Jesus, but this is how Jesus said the mark of a disciple. This is how people will know that you're one of my followers, is if you have love for one another. So today, we're going to take a look at um, something that's really, to me, it's a difficult passage, um, simply because it seems so elementary on the surface, and you think it's kind of a no-duh verse, but this is a big verse, and it's packed with a lot of stuff, so I, I hope that I communicate this well, and I hope it makes sense when this is all done. As we all know, this is election week. Uh, Tuesday, I think, is election day, and it'll all be final. And I don't know about you, but I am so ready for this to be over with. I mean, we can't even watch a football game without 30 political commercials coming on. It's like, man, taking all my fun out of my football day. Um, what's amazing to me, though, uh, and one of the reasons it's so frustrating is because we know, right? Like, we've all lived in the tension of watching the commercials. We look at the candidates. They, they, they post their little messages. They do their little plugs. And what's amazing to me is how two commercials, because they usually go back to back, don't they? One candidate yeah. runs his commercial, and then the very next commercial is from the other candidate, and they say two completely different things. And so the struggle is for us as voters, for us as people, we look at these things and we go, how, how do we know how to vote? The bigger question really that we ask ourselves is, is how do we know who's telling the truth? Because one says one thing and one says another, okay? And the truth, as it is reported by the media and talked about by, by politicians, it's about as difficult to nail down as jello, isn't it? I mean, it is very, very difficult because we want to, I mean, ultimately we want to go to the voters' polls and we want to vote based on what we know to be true, but then we go, okay, well, what is the truth? Politicians stand on different sides of issues and they claim that they are telling the truth and the other side is telling lies, right? Like every candidate's going to say, we got the truth, we know the truth, here's what the truth is, and this is how we're going to run the country or the state or the community or whatever. And then there's another politician that says, oh, well, they're telling lies, the real truth is this, and it's like, okay. Where do we go from here? But none of their campaigns are really built on truth, if you think about it. So when a politician gets in front of a camera or somebody pieces together a campaign ad for a politician, they're not trying to present truth to you. What they're trying to present to you and to me is happiness. If you vote for me, this is how the community will be, this is how the state will be, this is how the country will be, and then you'll be happy. And so then they, what they do is they play towards the things that you feel like and I feel like are going to make us happy. And so they, get to, they try to get our votes through, not truth, but happiness. And the reason is, is because they know something that you and I kind of intuitively know, but maybe we've just never categorized it. And here's what that is. People are not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. We tend to deny truth if it'll make us happy. 
We tend to um, lean into things and attach ourselves to things that we might not know if they're true or not, but they just kind of make us happy. And so here's what politicians sell, right? They sell the opportunity for me and you to be happy. Vote for me and I'll fix the economy. Well, both of them have both sides, if you will. Both political parties have a plan for how they're going to fix the economy, right? I mean, both of them do. Which one's right? Vote for me and I will spend my days in office making our country better or our state better. And then you will all be happy. And that's what they tell us. And so we, we think about these things as we go to the polls. And we go, okay, well, this side says this will make us happy. And this side says this will make us happy. And then we try to figure out what the real truth is. And then we try to go vote intelligently. And again, all because this. They know that we're not on a truth quest. We are all on a happiness quest. And so I want to begin this morning by asking a question. We're going to put it on the screen for you. What makes you happy? What makes you happy? I can tell you what would have made me happy last Saturday. <laughs> Didn't happen. What makes you happy? What will it take to make you happy? That's a big question. And it's a very important question. The qu this question is more important than it seems. And the reason is, is that we all have a tendency to pursue what makes us happy. Because whatever it is that makes you happy, that's what you're going to chase after. That's why that question is so huge. What makes you, what makes me, what makes us happy? But happiness isn't easy to nail down either, is it? Think about it. Think about all of the things, if you could take a, an inventory right now, if we could gave you a, a sheet of paper, uh, and you could take an inventory of all the things that make you happy. I mean, think about your list. Think about the list of everything that you could compile onto one sheet of paper that would make you happy. They're like many of the politicians we vote for. They stand on opposite sides of the fence. Your things, the things that you would put down and categorize as the things that would make you happy, some of those things actually stand in direct opposition to one another. They are contradictory at best. Are they not? Here's an example of what I mean. So I'm just going to give you my inventory real quick, if that's all right, just things that would make me happy, and we won't even get into the whole Florida Georgia fiasco. Eating pizza, burgers, ice cream. I had some ice cream yesterday. Thanks for the recommendation, Casey Connor, wherever you're at. When your doctor prescribes ice cream, <laughs> man, that's a good day. And it made me happy while I was eating it. But again, eating pizza, burgers, ice cream, and junk food and sitting in front of the TV on a Saturday watching football, that is absolutely what makes me happy. But you know what else makes me happy? Something else that makes me happy is being in better shape physically, seeing weight go off, not come on, being able to run further than five steps. You know what I mean? Like, just the little things. But those two things that both make me happy, being in, being in shape and doing nothing and eating poorly, those two things are in direct opposition to one another. But both of them make me happy, so which one do I do? If we could figure out a way to do both, that would be fantastic. Somebody could engineer some food somehow. But both of those two pictures, 
Those are both pictures of happiness, but they're in opposition to one another. This morning, we're going to take a look at one of Jesus' more difficult teachings. And I say it's difficult. We've heard this before. We've looked at, I'm sure if you've been in church very long or if you've been in any Bible studies, you've read this passage and you've heard this, right? But to me, it's not as easy as it looks on the surface. It's very difficult to kind of nail down. And the reason it's difficult is because it offers something that speaks to the pursuit of our happiness, while at the very same time asking us to do something that doesn't sound very comfortable and certainly does not sound on the surface like it's going to produce for us happiness. But again, I hope by the end of the message that this all makes sense and clicks for you. And so here's what it says. Let's look in Mark chapter 8. Now let me set this up real quick. Um, Jesus has just taken the disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was kind of like the Las Vegas of Jesus' day. And in it, uh, there was this place called the Temple of Pan. The Temple of Pan was literally a rock wall with carvings. Uh, they kind of hollow out a section of the wall, and then they would put an idol in there. And then it was kind of like this place where no matter who your God was, no matter who you worshipped, you could go to the Temple of Pan, and there was, a, there was an idol for you to worship whoever that was. And so it's believed that when Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, that he takes the disciples to this spot, the Temple of Pan, and he stands in front of a wall full of idols, and he says, hey, got a question for you. Who do people say that I am? And so they say, well, you know, some say Elijah, some say, you know, John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. And he says, and then he looks at him, he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter, who's really known for kind of, I guess, probably being like me or me being like him, whatever, opens his mouth before he thinks about what's going to come out of it. And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. And it's like, ding, 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 Peter, perfect answer. You are the winner. You win the prize. Peter gets it right. So this is kind of the context. So Jesus, the disciples, Peter, the question's been asked. Peter gets it right. And in this moment, in this moment, we're going to see what happens next. And it's, it's really sort of unbelievable. And so here's what verse 31 says. And it says, and he began to teach them. So right after this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Could you imagine, like, rebuking Jesus? Like, just, none of us would ever do that. None of us would ever tell Jesus that we know better what Jesus wants to do in our life. But that's, you know, another story for another day. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, verse 33. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, this... This passage should make us feel a little better about ourselves, right? I mean, right on the heels of giving the absolutely perfect answer to a very difficult and at the time controversial question, Peter gives the absolutely perfect answer. And then he follows it up. I mean, again, answering probably the most important question, he gets it right. And then in the very next moment, Jesus is having to look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. Could you imagine I mean, I know Peter would go on to deny Jesus three times and the rooster would crow and he would weep bitterly, but this, this wasn't a very good moment for Peter either. That, hey, you're the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the hope of the world. You are the one who came to deliver men from slavery to sin. You're the Christ. And just within moments, Peter is being told, Satan, get behind me. And the reason is, is because Peter had the correct term. You're the Christ but he had the wrong understanding of what the term really meant. So Peter has the right term, but he has the wrong understanding. And if I'm being honest, if I, have to, I have to confess that there are many versions of Jesus in the church. See, Peter had a version of Jesus. 
in his head. It's the one that was kind of popularized by the people in Jesus' time, that there was going to be a Messiah, and when the Messiah came back, that he wasn't going to be a savior of sin, and he wasn't establishing a kingdom in heaven, but he was establishing more of a right now, right here kingdom, and he was going to come and overthrow the Roman government, and Israel was going to be autonomous again. They were going to be on their own. They would be their own nation, and they would have as their king on earth Christ. And that was the version of Jesus that they had embraced. And so when Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and die, they're like, no, 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 no. That's not who the Messiah is, Jesus. And if I'm being honest, I have to confess that there's many versions of Jesus in the church today. I mean, there's the Jesus exists to make me wealthy Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Like, hey, if I just follow Jesus, man, my life's going to be great. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to live in a big old mansion. Um, life's just, I'm going to have all the money that I'll ever need if I just follow Jesus. There's the Jesus exists to make me healthy Jesus that you, you ever know. I mean, we, we believe in that Jesus too, don't we? You're going, no, I don't believe in that Jesus. Oh, yes, you do. It's like when you, if you're like me the other day, I, I was um, over in Patterson, Georgia, um, be, uh, participating in the funeral for Miss uh, Julie Thomas. And on the way back, I'm coming through because I had to hurry back. We had a football game Friday night. I wanted to make sure that I was there to do the pregame devotion with the team. And so I'm on my way back and I stopped in Alma. And in Alma, there's this place called Popeye's Chicken. Have y'all ever heard of yeah, some Popeye's chicken, man, it's so good, like those red beans and rice. And you know what? I sat down in Popeye's with my tray because I got like this really crispy fried chicken that the stuff, you know, the breading's just coming off while you're crunching on it. It's the chicken's juicy and the red beans and rice, they're perfectly mixed together. And then, I mean, don't even get me started on the biscuit. I mean, the biscuit was fantastic. And, and you know what I'm doing? So I sit down to pray and I'm going, uh, here's my, and this is how most of us pray. Um, Bless this food to the nourishment of my body. Fried chicken. <laughs> Jesus, perform a miracle right now. We believe in the Jesus who lives to make us healthy, right? That's a version of Jesus that we all, that we all somehow believe in. And then we have this other one, Jesus, the, the Jesus that exists to make life easy. That if I follow Jesus, like, I'm never going to have any problems. My, my marriage will be like, you know, the leave it to beaver people or, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, you just, and if you don't know who leave it to beaver is young people, just go Google it and watch an episode. It'll change your life. I maybe. And, and so like our, our marriages will always be perfect. Our kids will always perfectly be behaved. And so if I just follow Jesus, then life goes really easy and life is always perfect. We also believe in this um, version of Jesus. I call the get me out of jail free Jesus. Like if I get in trouble, like if life gets a little difficult because I made some bad decisions, man, I'm just going to show up to church and I'll pray real hard and I'll worship and I may put some money in the plate and Jesus is going to make life right again. It's the get out of jail free Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes Peter for that kind of thinking. There are not there's me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. And it's important that you understand this. And this is a warning to us all. We don't get to create our own version of Jesus. He has identified himself through his word, and this is how we get to know him. And it's, there's only one version, and there's only one way that he works. And he would tell Peter this, and he told Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. And by the way, this version of Jesus is better than all those other versions of Jesus that you and I can draw up or imagine up, because we always know where the truth is, and we always know where we can stand. 
Listen to what 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 6 through 9. And so he says this, he says, Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. Or he says we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age. Or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. Okay, this is something that we all need to grasp a hold of. In other words, Paul's saying this isn't obvious to everyone. And so it's important that we go, okay, if this is kind of a secret and hidden wisdom, then we need to really lean in so that we can uncover what this is. And he says, um, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. He is better. The authentic, real version of Jesus as declared in Scripture is better than any version of Jesus that you and I can dream up or imagine. And that's what Paul is trying to get across. Look at what happens uh, after this in, back in Mark 8, starting in verse 34. Um, and calling the crowd to him. So imagine the moment. Jesus is proud of Peter in one moment. Peter, you got it. I'm the Christ. And then Peter says, whoa, 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 Jesus, we're not doing that. And then Peter says, get behind me, Satan. And then it says, noticing the disciples in the crowd. So all of a sudden, Jesus perceives and picks up on the fact that the disciples are hearing this conversation and the crowds are around and they too are picking, up, picking up on this. And it says, in calling to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, Notice first, we're going to jump all the way back to um, verse 34, and notice there's a redundancy in this verse. If you look at it, it says, if anyone would come after me, let him follow me. Kind of a redundancy there. And so when we look at that, since, the first, since those follow me's don't give instruction for how we're supposed to follow, then we have to dig a little deeper and look into the text a little further. Jesus then says this, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. So let's deal with the take up the cross part of this whole thing first, okay? What does it mean to take up your cross? I mean, there's all these things that we can conjure up and imagine, right? We can, oh, to take up your cross just means, you know, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to maybe go to a Bible study and you know, there's just some things that we can probably add to that, but that's not what Jesus meant. Here's what taking up a cross meant in the context in which Jesus said it. So let's talk about the cross. What is the cross? To take up your cross meant to face opposition. If you had a cross strapped to your back, carrying it to the hill where they would be crucified, then what you were saying or what ultimately is said about you is that Rome opposes you. You were under the punishment of Rome and you were submitting yourself to the Roman governing authority. So it meant opposition. To take up your cross also meant shame. For you to take up your cross and a person who was hung on the cross was considered one of society's worst people. And oh, by the way, the pictures that you and I see in the movies and probably the, the photos of Jesus on the cross with his loincloth on, he didn't have a loincloth. They were usually crucified naked. 
So taking up your cross not only means opposition or represents opposition, but it also represents shame. Taking up your cross also meant suffering. Crucifixion was not an easy thing. Getting nails driven through your hands and feet was probably the easiest part of it because then there's the the suffocation that comes with it, the knowing that over time my lungs are going to fill with fluid and I'm going to I'm going to pass because I can't breathe. And then because of that, again, taking up your cross also meant death. It wasn't simply torture and then release. It was like, you're going to die. When you put that cross on your back, you are going to die. When we lay you on that cross and raise you up, you are going to die. So the cross meant opposition, shame, suffering, and death. So here's a question for us. Are we willing to be opposed, shamed, to suffer and die for him? Or... Will we seek approval, acceptance, comfort, and life through the things that we pursue in the world? It's a question. At this point, you're probably thinking about the question that I asked when I began, what makes you happy? Because you're probably thinking, wow, that doesn't sound real happy right there. So evidently, Jesus meant something a little more. And simultaneously, as we entertain the thought of what makes us happy after reading this passage, is we're asking ourselves what being opposed, being shamed, suffering, and death have to do with happiness. Well, there's a second part in here. So he says, let him take up his cross. Let him first, he says, deny himself. Let him deny himself. Now, what does this add to the verse, and how does it help us to push against and better understand maybe what truly makes us happy. How does denying ourselves make us happy? That's a really big question. And I think it's one of the things that we struggle with as, as followers of Jesus. See, there's something that lies beneath the surface of this section that will help us better understand how anyone could ever get to the place of being willing to take up their cross in the first place. So in this verse, Jesus is going to introduce the new self. Let me explain that real quick. If I deny myself, there is the me that is denying myself, and then there's the myself that's being denied. So there's the denying self, and then there's the denied self. Jesus is going to introduce a second self. There's the denying self and the denied self. What is the difference between the two? The denied self sees taking up his cross and pushes against it because it's an enemy of happiness. Like none of us thinks about those things and goes, ooh, that would be just great if I could suffer and be opposed and be shamed today. That just makes me, I mean, that would just make my day. Like none of us think that way. The denied self seeks comfort, acceptance, and approval. And think of it in a way that we deny ourselves sweets when we're trying to cut weight, right? I mean, you're going, all right, I want to cut some weight, but man, those sweets sound really good, so I'm going to deny myself. There's the denied self, and then there's the denying self. The denied self doesn't like being denied. Then there's the denying self. The denying self knows something that the denied self does not. The denying self knows that feelings are fickle. You, listen, we can feel one day, one way. I mean, you Georgia fans can't even make your mind up about how, whether or not you like Stetson Bennett. I, I think it's crazy. One day he's the greatest quarterback on the planet, and the next day it's like, hey, we got to put Carson Beck in there. I mean, something's got to happen here. Feelings are fickle. And there is, the denying self knows that the feelings are this way, and there is a truth that undergirds the benefits leveraged through this denial of self. 
To deny self means that we get, to deny yourself means that you get all you want of Jesus. Not just a little bit. I don't want enough of Jesus to get to heaven. I want everything that Jesus wants to give me. Amen? I mean, I want it all. Because with that comes joy unspeakable. Now, I want to give two illustrations to pull this idea together, and then we're going to wrap up. Okay? So talking about denial of self and what brings ultimate joy. Um, my wife and I have been married for 25 years. We, uh, we leave in a couple weeks for Italy. We're going to go eat a whole lot of Italian food, but we're going to walk it off. Um, when, when you were dating your spouse, when you were in that phase of like you dated for a while and then one day you got with some of your buddies, men, right? You got with your buddies and you're like, man, I think this is it. I think she's the one. I'm going to ask her to marry me. And your buddies were all like, what are you doing? Like, man, if you get married, you can't come to the house and hang out when you want if you get married, we can't just pick the basketball up, go down to the court, and play basketball whenever we want. You get married, your money's no longer yours. It's hers. And listen, we all heard all of those reasons to not get married. Hey, man, don't deny yourself. You need to live for yourself. Just stay single. It's the way to go. We were all told that. But you're all married, for those of you who are here and married. You, you got married anyway. Even though you knew all of those things, you got married anyway. What in the world was wrong with you? That's what your buddies would have thought. But then there was that moment, right? There was the moment. You're standing at the altar. Best man's next to you. Pastor's standing there. Everybody's walking down the aisle. The bridesmaids have all come in. The mothers and grandmothers and fathers and the whole family's filled up the benches. And, and then the doors close. And then there's that moment, right? The piano player hits the big chord on the piano. The doors fly open. And there she is. And in that moment, you're not thinking about, ah, there goes basketball. You know what you're thinking? In that moment, you were thinking, I know those guys said all that stuff about everything that I'm going to have, in all these ways I'm going to have to deny myself, but she's better. She's better than all of those things. Amen. Man, you missed it, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jake got, yep, Jake hit it out of the park. Here's your out, honey. I was just praying about how thankful I am for you in that moment. <laughs> now, the reason that many Christians, so go, let me jump to my second illustration. This, the, the, the reason that many of us never take that step with Jesus where we go, okay, listen, I'm willing to deny myself in order to have more of Jesus the reason is, and, and there's a lot of people in this congregation that you could talk to. There are so many people in this congregation that you could talk to right now. And they would tell you that their life is so radically different because of Jesus. And like, they can't get enough. And then there's other people that kind of sit back and look at people like that and go, what's wrong with them? Like, they're so happy. They're so excited. Like, they always want to be at the church. They always want to do stuff. They always want to teach Jesus, talk about the Bible. They always, like, what's wrong with them? Do they have anything else in life 
They do, but just nothing in, in life satisfies them as much as Jesus. So, I, I want to, if you'll give me just a second, I want to grab something to illustrate this, okay? <clears throat> I'm just going to make sure they're all here. Hasn't even opened yet. I've got to get the tab out. Yeah, they're there. They smell pretty fantastic, I'm not going to lie. Let me tell you a little something about Krispy Kreme. Uh, Their headquarters, anybody know where their headquarters are? Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That's where their headquarters are at. Do you know anybody in here know when they were established? Krispy Kreme was started in 1937. They're coming up on the 100-year anniversary, which we're all praying they give away 100 free donuts the day of, right? It's just coming up in a few years. Pray we make it. Anybody know who the founder of Krispy Kreme Donuts is? You could probably not send him a thank you card. He's probably no longer here. But his name, in case you want to know, is Vernon Carter Randolph. He started the company called Krispy Kreme. Now, the story is that you know, we've heard this as Christians. No one has ever found the ark. I beg to differ. I think Mr. Vernon Randolph or Vernon Carter Randolph found the ark of the covenant, and inside the ark were the Ten Commandments, Aaron's budded staff, and manna. And I think what he did was he duplicated the recipe of manna. He, he kind of got in there, got the ingredients, he duplicated this thing. And um, I believe this is what happened. And he opened up the very first Krispy Kreme, and it was the recipe of man. I mean, think about this now. These things, they, they're, in the, they're in the shape of a halo. <laughs> they have been baptized in oil and anointed with glaze. I mean, these things... And every time I open the box, I get a really good whiff. Any, how many Krispy Kreme people in the house? I noticed everybody's hands went up. It was more when I don't have a box than it was when I do, do not have a box. Um, more now than before. Uh, so how many of you are any cream-filled people in the house? Cream-filled people. Mm. Cream-filled is good stuff, right? Uh, how about this? How many, um, how many of you are, and this is usually more in kind of the kids' realm, but you never know. How, how many uh, of you are the, I like sprinkles people, sprinkles on the donuts. Makes a mess in the car, but it's all right. How about, um, how about this one? Any, um, any chocolate-glazed people? I like it. The, uh, the chocolate glaze, the cream-filled, the sprinkles, the crullers, any crueler people? Yeah. Yeah. If I wanted a crueler, I'd go to Duncan. But it's all about this. I mean, all those others, they're so good. I mean, they're, they're good. But what makes the cream the cream? It's just the glazed donut. I mean, it just does not get any better than the glazed donut. Now, Krispy Kreme did not go into business for you to know what year they were founded. They didn't go into business for you to know who the founding person of Krispy Kreme was. As a matter of fact, you can call them 1-800-4-CRISPY. 
Anybody know the Krispy Kreme mission statement? Mission statement, in case you were wondering. The Krispy Kreme mission statement is our mission is to touch and enhance lives through the joy that is Krispy Kreme. Now, you can call one 800 4 Crispy, and you can call them, and you can go, hey, we went to church today, and this guy told us all this stuff about the founder, about when, in 1937, you guys were started. You could tell him about, oh, he, he told us about Winston-Salem is where your headquarters are. That's so cool. You could call him and tell him that, and they'd be like, wow, you were really impressed by facts. But that's not what we're in business for. Do you know what Krispy Kreme is in business for? Yeah. You see this thing right here? Anybody want to hold the rest of these for me? I'm going to set this back here somewhere. Don't step on them, JT. They're right by your pedal board. Krispy Kreme is in business, not for you to know facts about this. Smells really good. (laughs) Krispy Kreme is in business because they want me and you to do this right here. (laughs) Mm. That's really good. You guys should have one. I only got 11 left. Wish we'd have known that. (laughs) Mm, We got to remember that. Staff, write that down. Food truck, Krispy Kreme. Now, I can tell you, I can tell you how good this tastes. I mean, I can describe to you how just fluffy it is. I can tell you and describe to you how sweet it is. I can tell you that you barely even have to chew, especially when they're hot now. I can tell you how good this tastes. But you know what scripture tells us about Jesus, about God himself? Let me read you a passage of scripture. Psalm 34, 8. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, I can tell you how good this tastes. I can tell you how good this tastes. But... I would rather you taste and see that the Lord is good. See, sometimes I feel like we are just like Christian food critics. That we show up to church and write about or talk about how good our experience with Jesus is and other people sit back and go, that's great. It's great for you. But God doesn't want to be explained. He wants to be experienced. And the only way that we will ever be able to, notice again what Jesus says, if, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Until you know how good God is, the denial of self is going to be a difficult challenge. Because there's the denied self and the denying self. And until you know how good Jesus is, the denied self is always going to win. 
God doesn't want to be explained. He wants to be experienced. 